Well, if we have not met yet, my name is Brian. And actually, I got a chance to share here at Northern Hills just a couple weeks ago for the first time. And this is really special for you guys because this is my church home. So whether you like it or not, I am the brother, the weird cousin. I've got refrigerator rights here. And I just love to be with family and just love this church, the staff leadership. And I've been able to meet now a handful of you guys. So it's just an absolute honor for me to share today, this morning. And I get to continue this road trip series that we started this last couple weeks. And the whole idea behind this series is we know a lot of you guys are going to be traveling, going on trips, vacations, seeing family. Maybe you're joining in online from your lake house that you did not invite me to this weekend, but we just thought if all of us are going to be doing a lot of traveling, what would it look like to follow Jesus on some of his own travels that he took? And today's kind of interesting because we're going to look at a point in Jesus' life when he actually travels back to his hometown and we get to see kind of the response from all his family and friends. Now I got to ask, do we have any transplants in the room? Any non-natives? Yeah, okay, here's some pride. Okay, sorry natives, I know we all drive you insane, but you can't blame us for wanting to live here, all right? But here's the funny thing, if you do move away, there is a whole new dynamic about going back to your hometown once you change geographies. And maybe you guys have had this experience. Some of you guys go into your hometown, it might be a great experience. It is a highlight of the year seeing family and friends. It brings back all the childhood nostalgia. Maybe for some of us, it is like not the highlight, let's just say. And you're just trying to avoid political conversations with family members and just all the dynamics that brings. I'm sure it's a mixed bag on some level. But here's what's interesting. We are going to take a peek at Jesus when he goes back to his hometown for the first time since he starts to blow up on the scene. Because just out of nowhere, this is 30-something-year-old guy who starts doing all these teachings. He's traveling around. People are hearing he's doing miracles. He's healing people. There's just all this gossip and talk about this guy. And he is going back to his hometown after everybody starts to hear all this chaos he's starting to cause. And we get a peek to the response of his own hometown. But here's the thing. Before we really dig in, I think it's just important to mention that I think it's tempting for all of us to sometimes see Jesus as this, like, nebulous religious figure. And yet we have to remember He had a life. Like he had brothers and sisters. He grew up. He had friends. He lived in a neighborhood. Like Jesus lived a real life. And all these people who were about to encounter him knew Jesus before he was like the Jesus we know as we read in the New Testament. And so I think as we look at their response to him, it actually informs a little bit of our own response when we have an encounter with Jesus ourselves. And so if you guys want to follow along, I'm going to be in Luke 4. Open up your Bibles, get on your phone, watch it on the screen, however you want to do it. I'm going to start verse 16. We're going to hit this. It's talking about Jesus. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Now let's set the stage here a little bit. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Now scholars say that at most when Jesus grew up there, there would be maybe 400 people in the entire town. Some think it was as small as a couple dozen people. Jesus lived small town life. All right, he grew up in a blue-collar, working-class, poor area. Everybody was in each other's businesses. You know, you just know how this works. And the best comparison I can think of, I was just trying to think of how we can, like, really frame this in our minds, is Jesus grew up in East Colorado. That's just where he grew up. Now, that's no hate on East Colorado, right? But he grew up in some small town out there where everybody knows what's going on. There's one stoplight, and everybody's just driving through the town. This is where Jesus grew up. And yet Luke makes a special point to note that Jesus made a habit out of going to synagogue. It says, as was his custom. Now, I'm sure you've heard of synagogue before. This is essentially Jewish church. 
where people would gather for worship and prayer and community and fellowship. Honestly, it is not totally unlike what we're doing here right now. And so Luke is trying to make sure we know this point that Jesus prioritized church in his life. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing to talk about when you think of just church involvement in our country right now. This might actually be kind of interesting to you guys. This year is actually historic when it comes to just the faith practices of Americans in particular. As of 2021, this study was started 100 years ago, though some people think this may be the first time it's ever happened. For the first time in the last 100 years, the majority of um, Americans are not a part of a church. We've officially crossed that line. And actually, nearly a quarter of our entire country now would identify as having no religion at all. That's where things are going. And here's the thing. If you are not a Christian, you are not, not identified as a Jesus follower, I would not expect you to really care about church. I mean, I would love for you to consider it, but I wouldn't expect it to be a prioritor in your life. But interestingly, even people who identify as Christian, on average, a regular church attender will go one time a month. One time a month. So how many of you guys, you're just checking the box this weekend and we'll see you in August? Is that kind of the plan for some of you guys? Now, this is a little bit anecdotal, but I talked to a lot of pastors in Colorado. Most pastors in Colorado will tell you in Colorado, the average is about once every six weeks because you have some pretty good alternatives on a Sunday morning than church, right? There's a couple things you could be doing in Colorado. I think this is interesting because Jesus saw church participation as critical to his own rhythm and habits. Now, I'm just wondering, if there is one person who probably doesn't need to go to church, who do you think it is? I'm thinking Jesus doesn't really need church a whole lot. I mean, could you imagine walking into a church service being like, yeah, um, I inspired everything you're about to read and I created you, but let's see if you can come up with something new for me to hear. I mean, I could not imagine having Jesus sitting in the congregation right now just being like, let's see what you can come up with. But here's the funny thing. I grew up in a very, honestly, dysfunctional, complex family, right? That is a whole topic for another sermon, trust me. But here's the thing. Church was actually a part of my family's rhythm growing up. Now, here's the thing. When I say church, I'm not talking about the church you're thinking of right now, okay? There was no coffee latte shop in the lobby that you could sip on while you're listening to the sermon. There was no shorts and sandals. You got to look at how Brandon's dressed right now in the front row. That was not allowed in church when I was growing up. I went to church, church. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about, okay? You didn't show up without some type of collar on if you were a dude. I had some sort of dress shoes on, khaki pants. Not just any khaki pants, pleated khaki pants. Our church had these medieval torture devices you may have heard of called pews, which were these wooden benches that you would have to sit on the entire service, which were designed to make you as uncomfortable as possible during the entire service. We had this thing called an organ, which technically was playing music which is not music at all. I'm just saying, if there's an organ in a room, music is not happening in that place, okay? I don't care what you say. Our pastor, every single week, showed up wearing a dress to church. Now, he called it a robe, but it was not a robe. He wore a dress every single week, and that was my church experience. And yet, my family, we just never missed, honestly. It could be Memorial Day weekend, we were going. Labor Day, we are going. The week after Christmas, we're going to be at church. July 4th, you better believe we were going to be in church. And I even remember sometimes when I was growing up, I played soccer. I would have a game at the same time as church, and my mom would be like, well, great, you're just going to wear your uniform to church, and you're going to be late to the game. And that would be what I would have to do anytime I had a sport going on. And also, my mom never, ever 
ever in the history of my childhood, ever, ever, ever in the morning said, hey, you feel like going to church this morning, Brian? You in the mood for church? Because she knew the answer. No, I am not in the mood for church ever. I don't want to go. I don't want to go to church. But she's like, well, you're going. So we're not going to even ask because it's going to happen. And yet, here's the thing. As an 11-year-old boy, after all those years of church, I still remember going to one of those just forgettable services in my mind. And yet, as an 11-year-old boy, for the first time in life, I had a genuine encounter with the living God. And Jesus got a hold of my heart and set me on a whole new trajectory that has completely changed my life as a grown man and my eternity forever. And as much as I didn't like it as a child, you can clap for that. I am grateful. As much as I hated getting directors, I will tell you, I am so glad that my parents made it a priority in my life. And I just know there's probably some of us, maybe even in this room you're watching online, like some days you're just like, man, I, I'm not really in the mood for it. I don't really get that much out of it. Sometimes the sermons are kind of forgettable. And I get that. I get, I get some of those thoughts. But I actually had um, a pastor once tell me a story. He had a member come up to him after service one day and say, Pastor, just to be honest, I don't remember any of the sermons. Like if you asked me what you preached about two weeks ago, I have no idea what you were talking about. And I don't remember. And the pastor said, well, you remember what you had for lunch three Tuesdays ago? And the guy's like, well, no. The pastor's like, was it still nourishing to your body? And where he was trying to get at with that was, Church isn't even so much about remembering content or having this totally unbelievable, overwhelming experience. It is about nourishment to your soul. And there is a cumulative effect that a discipline of prioritizing God through gathering with his people has on your soul and your life. And Jesus knew this even as God in the flesh. He made this a point to be a part of his regular spiritual diet. So I just want to encourage you. I know I'm kind of pandering and preaching to the crowd because you're here even on a holiday weekend right now. But if you are serious about following Jesus, you really should be serious about church. It really matters to your spiritual life. It matters that you feed and nourish your soul. It matters that you gather with other people and let them experience the presence of God through our collective presence together. And I'm not going to get on anybody's case. I know COVID is still a thing on some level and there's different health dynamics, whatever. But if you are able to get in person, and there's no other concerns there. You really should prioritize in-person attendance as much as you can. You really should. There's just something about being together, God's family in a place, worshiping Jesus together. And Jesus himself saw it as important. And so Jesus is at church right now, and he's about to give the sermon. Jesus is about to preach. And so we're going to pick it up right here. Verse 17. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And he reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Remember that. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, there's a lot loaded in that. And you got to understand, throughout the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, there would be all these prophecies, which were predictions about God's actions in the future. And a lot of these prophecies talked about this Messiah figure. And the Jews started to believe through these prophecies that there was going to be a person one day who was going to come and deliver the Jews from all the oppression, from the heavy taxation, from the Romans, from, from their low status, 
and deliver them into this amazing golden age. And they believed this person was going to do it through military might, political power. He's going to smash the enemies and bring in this amazing peace and prosperity. And it was 700 years from the point that prophecy is written to when Jesus read it. 700 years. And Jesus is reading this in this room. At this point in time in Jewish history, there was so much pent-up expectation and anticipation and energy around this idea of the Messiah. They were like, it's going to happen any day now. We wait hundreds of years, generations. God is going to come. We can feel it. It's, it was at an absolute boiling point. And Jesus is reading this passage to them. I mean, you can feel people kind of wrestling around the room like, where is he going with this? What's he going to say? Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. What is this guy about to do? Where is he going with this? Verse 21, he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop. Now, I would drop this mic, but Jackie said it's really expensive, so I just have to do this. How do you even begin to respond to a guy who says things like this? Jesus is standing in front of all these people who have known him for years, and he's saying, what you've been talking about, those things you've been praying for, the generations and generations that have been building up anticipation about this, all that pain and suffering and problems that you think are going to be taken away, this Messiah who you think is coming to usher in this golden age, the culmination of all human history is me. These people are looking at this guy who has been a small town carpenter his whole life, and he's claiming to be the culmination and climax of history itself. That is a hard thing to digest. Not just for them, but honestly for us. Because we need to be honest, especially in America, we love to domesticate Jesus. We pick out all the little sayings he says that we really like and sound good on coffee cups and t-shirts, and then we just kind of conveniently push aside all the controversial, uncomfortable things he says and does. And we kind of build our own little Jesus. So you hear people say, oh, yeah, he's such a great teacher. He said a lot of interesting things, definitely an important historical figure. And even honestly, if you don't consider yourself a Christian today, I bet you don't have a ton of negative things to say about Jesus. You may th still think he's a pretty good guy. He may not play a huge important role in your life, but you don't necessarily see him as this massive threat. And yet, if that is your opinion of Jesus, good guy, important historical figure, you need to know this, you have not looked at his own claims about himself closely enough. You haven't. You have settled for a cultural, neutered definition of Jesus that he would wholeheartedly reject for himself. I'm sure you guys have heard of Bono before. He's the famous front man of U2. This is a quote from an interview. I think it's really relevant to just what we're talking about right now. This is what Bono says. I think it's the defining question. Who was Christ? I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker, a great philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So either he was the son of God or he was nuts. 
When people say, good teacher, prophet, really nice guy, that's not how Jesus thought of himself. So you're left with a challenge in that either Jesus is who he said he was or a complete and utter nutcase. So that leaves me with a question for us. Who is he to you? Who is Jesus to you? Have you really looked at the claims? Have you really looked at Jesus and studied the history, the accounts of his life? Or have you honestly just made up some convenient cultural definition that honestly lacks any real effort and is pretty lazy? Jesus doesn't give you the option of just having a neutral, lukewarm response to him. He is in this room and he draws a line right down the middle and forces his own friends and family to decide who he is. And now we get to see their response. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Now here's the thing. Jesus is preaching good. They are like it. He's preaching way better than I am preaching right now. I wish we could be hearing his sermon, but you're stuck with me today, so I'm sorry. But he's preaching good. And they're like, man, what is this guy saying? This is some good stuff. And yet at the same time, they're like, what? But hold up, that's Joseph's son, right? The guy who's married to Mary? I mean, they live right down the street. The guy who's the carpenter? I mean, Jesus was on my kid's Little League team 20 years ago. And his dad built my shed in my backyard. And Jesus has been putting shiplap up in our houses for the last couple of years. This, isn't this the same guy? And they're just not able to put together that he's saying things like this. And Mark is another writer in the New Testament who gives a different angle of the same account. And he says this, he says, and they took offense at him. They are not very happy about what's happening right now. They are not excited about what Jesus has to say. And I think this is honestly just a good moment to take a little sidebar here. Talk a little bit about family dynamics. Because we get our first account of Jesus having a clash with his own family members and friends. And if you have been a Christian for any length of time, I am sure you have felt that tension of trying to live out your faith and convictions around your friends and family who don't share the same beliefs as you. And Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, had run-ins with his own family and friends that were not positive. And I think that only means that we need to know that your attempts at living faithfully for God around your family and friends doesn't guarantee a positive response for you either. And maybe you guys have had my experience before. You're, you're around family, you're around friends, and you're thinking, okay, I don't want to come on too strong. I want to be a little careful. I don't want to freak anybody out. But then you're afraid, like, I don't want to miss an opportunity either. And then maybe some of you guys are like, no, I'm going to come on strong. I'm going to say something. I'm going to make a point. This is my chance. But then you're like, but I don't want the next four Christmases to be really, really awkward. And you're just trying to figure out how to do this faith thing. And Jesus, he is full of perfect love and grace and truth. And he's able to speak in this compelling, attractive way, but also not water down his own convictions about what he knows to be true. I just think for us, we got to ask that question. What does it look like to really live out your faith in a compelling way that is still loving towards the people you care about most? And I wish there was a formula. I don't think that's how it works. I think every single case is different. There's so much nuance there's so many dynamics we can't speak to. But I think a good idea would be is if you are traveling 
this summer, this year, you're going to see family, you're going to see friends, you're maybe going to go back to your hometown, whatever it is, that is a really good opportunity to stop and pray and say, God, I just need wisdom, I need direction, I need words. I want to make sure I make the most of this opportunity with the people I really love. But at the end of the day, you have to trust God with the response because you are not guaranteed that it's going to go well. And it's not going well for Jesus. And so they give him this response. And this would be a really good time if you're Jesus, just to tone it down a little bit. You're starting to offend everybody, Jesus. Let's take it easy. And he's like, no, I'm going to press on this a little bit more. Let's just keep pushing it and see where this goes. So Jesus, he puts his foot harder on the gas. All right, verse 23, Jesus said to him, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now, Jesus, he's reading the room right here. He knows what's going on. He knows what people are thinking. He knows there's some cynicism. Some people are very skeptical. There's some resistance. There's people thinking there's no way this guy's the Messiah. He knows what's happening. And so he's starting to put words to their thoughts. He's like, I know what you guys want. You want me to do a trick. You want to see a sign. You're thinking, okay, Mr. Messiah, we heard you're doing all these miracles in these other towns. How about you do like a healing miracle? We heard some of those were happening. He's like, I know what you guys want. But he is just stating a fact about the spiritual condition of their hearts. And he's saying, I'm not going to be received here. You guys are not going to hear this. And what is so ironic about this situation is that the people who had been around Jesus the most knew him the least. Their own familiarity with Jesus prevented them from truly knowing him. Have you guys heard that phrase before, familiarity breeds contempt? It's kind of like a figure of speech. It's just that whole idea of like, the more you get to know someone, you create an idea in your mind of who they are. And so it's hard to change that. And these people are staring God in the face and because they have been around him, they think they know him. And there is no way in their minds that this guy could be anything more than a small town carpenter. Honestly, this is a really good warning for us. Because if you are somebody who has been in church a while, or even just Northern Hills for a while, it is very tempting to fall into a religious routine. You just start going through the motions. You don't really expect anything supernatural or special to happen. And it's been a while since you have a real genuine encounter with God yourself. And I can't tell you how many friends and people I have in my own life who either grew up in church or were in church for a while only to leave and never return. And as much as they were around environments with Jesus in it, they never came to a true knowledge of him themselves. And you have to be very careful because sometimes it's tempting to assume, oh, well, I was confirmed or I took my first communion. I was baptized, you know. I went to church, I was a part of this denomination. And you think that somehow is the same thing as really having a genuine relationship with Jesus yourself. And Jesus' own family and friends who spent 30 years with him are looking him in the face and they don't really know him. Now, things are really about to get dicey. Jesus is about to take a stick of dynamite and placed it on top of their understanding of God and the Messiah, and he's about to light the fuse in the room. And this is where he picks it up. Verse 25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, 
but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now, did anybody just hear that and go, what is Jesus talking about? Where is he going with this? It feels, it's kind of like it feels random. And yet when Jesus says this, his listeners would have known these stories immediately, right off the top of their heads. And Jesus is referencing some events that happened many years before any of them were alive. And he's using them as case studies for how God operates in the world and what his purpose for coming to the world was. And so I got to unpack this track with me, though. This is, this is important for us to get and understand. So st stay with me here for a minute. Jesus talks about two people. He talks about this, this widow, this woman. And there's some key facts about her. Number one, she's a woman, which unfortunately at that time meant she, she had a lower status. She was a widow, which definitely didn't help her, which means she was poor. And she lived, these are key Key facts, in Zarephath, region of Sidon, this was seen as a religious wasteland by Jews. They hated people from this area. They saw them as heretics, as backsliders. And they would hate a woman like this and look down on her. And yet Jesus is careful to note that the most important religious leader of that time, Elijah, went to her. And God sent him to her to help her in her greatest need. And then Jesus swings the whole social spectrum to the other side, and he brings up this guy, Naaman. Now, he's the total opposite of this woman. He's rich, he's powerful, he's famous, he's a man, and he is leading one of the oppressing armies of Israel. He would have been responsible for countless deaths of God's people. And yet he also had leprosy, which was a flesh-eating disease at the time that would most likely kill anybody who got it. And then Jesus is also careful to note out that the most powerful religious leader at this time was sent to this very man to be healed. Why is Jesus bringing these stories up right now? He is trying to flip their entire understanding of who God is and how he works and his own unique purposes in the world right on its head. Because these people read this prophecy from Isaiah about helping the oppressed and poor, and they're thinking, yes, this Messiah is going to come. He's going to destroy our enemies. He's going to eliminate them from existence on this planet. And once they're all gone, we can finally live in this golden age of peace and prosperity. That's what they were thinking. And Jesus comes back and says, I didn't come to bring judgment. I did not come to destroy the people you hate. I came to bring grace. And not just to you, but to everyone, even your worst enemies. I know we sometimes use that grace word. It can kind of sound like a vague theological word that loses its meaning because we use it so much. But when we talk about grace, we are talking about unmerited favor. It's unearned blessing. It's good things God brings into your life that you do not deserve. And this is fundamental to Jesus' teaching and work in this world. And now the stick of dynamite is about to explode. Because verse 28, look at how they respond to this statement. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Oh, they are mad. They are raging now. So much so they want this guy dead. And you're thinking, oh, what are they so mad about? Wow, these are some cranky people. My goodness, they need to calm down a little bit. What is the big deal? Man. But you gotta, you got to understand, when Jesus said these stories, they hear about this woman and Naaman, and they are disgusted. They're like, there is no way these people are worthy of any type of grace or help from God. They're supposed to be killed. They deserve to die. They don't get any help from God. 
And Jesus is telling stories to reveal what is going on in their hearts. And you have to understand this. Get this, because this is just how God works. To be worthy of God's grace, you have to recognize that you are totally unworthy of it. And that you are desperate for it. This widow and Naaman, they were absolutely desperate, dying of starvation and a disease. They knew they needed grace. And yet this very audience sitting in the presence of Jesus himself were blind to the fact that they were in great need themselves too. They did not see their desperation. And Jesus is trying to help them see that they are in the same position. You remember those types of people from that prophecy I read earlier? Talk about poor, prisoners, oppressed, blind people. You know what kind of people these are? People who have a need. People in desperate situations. And Jesus is infusing this passage with a, with a whole new level of meaning. He's saying, it's not just that some people are materially poor or some people are in prison. It is way worse than that. All of humanity is living in abject spiritual poverty. Every single one of us is imprisoned and oppressed by our own sinful nature. All of us are completely blind to the reality of God in our lives. You might hear that you're like, whoa, Brian, a little extreme. Okay, I'm not perfect, but okay, that's coming on a little strong. You just need to hear this right now. You may be nice. You might recycle. Maybe you show up to work on time. You may even be better than most of your neighbors. But if we were to put you on a scale and weigh your personal holiness against the eternal perfect standard of God, the scale would snap in half. Some of you guys, honestly, your life may be going pretty well right now. Some of you guys, you got some money in the bank, kids are doing good, you're in a good spot. But honestly, you may be handcuffed by comfort and complacency, just living your life for frivolous pleasure completely missing the reality of God and his purpose for your life. I mean, all of us, on some level, we do a great job of projecting an image to people around us. But if we were to pull back the layers on some of our lives in here, all of our lives actually, there is a whole slew of habits, addictions, resentments, attitudes, thought patterns, generational issues, that are plaguing us. And you may think it's just a quirk or something that's relatively harmless, but it has a total grip on you and you are in shackles. It's not bad, it's hopeless. It is way worse than that. No matter how good or bad your life is right now, we are all headed towards a freight train of eternal destruction. Some of you guys are like, whoa, okay, Brian. That's some bad news. You gotta know what the bad news is before you will really appreciate the good news. Does anybody wanna hear some good news now? Who's ready for some good news today? Let me tell you this. Jesus says, I have come to bring good news. 
for the poor, to set captives free, to release the oppressed, to break shackles. I have come to bring grace. That is the message Jesus brings. And he ends this prophecy with an exclamation point. You probably didn't catch it, but this is big. He said, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know what that was a reference to? This thing called the Jubilee. Now, if you can believe this, Every 50 years in Jewish culture, they would celebrate an entire year called the year of Jubilee, where they would cancel every single debt. They would set every single slave free. They would give all the original property back to the owners and they would spend an entire year off from working. Some of you guys have Monday off tomorrow. They got a whole year off. And it was this amazing year of celebration of God's goodness and his grace and his generosity in people's lives that they just celebrate the whole year. Jesus is saying, I didn't come just to celebrate Jubilee every 50 years. It is happening every single day now. It is in me. You get a Jubilee for eternity. You are set free from your sin. There is nothing but grace for you. That's the gift he is offering you. And he's standing in front of all his family and friends. He's saying, I want to give you the most unimaginable gift you could possibly imagine, grace from God. And they didn't know their own desperate situation. So they said, no. But today, today, Jesus is offering the same gift to every single one of us. A pure gift from God is grace. And when you really start to understand your sin and who Jesus really is, trust me, you will know you are really unworthy of this. But that positions you perfectly to receive this gift from God. That means you are worthy of it. Amen. But Jesus can't just be some interesting historical figure to you. He can't just be some good teacher He needs to be your savior. He needs to be your Messiah. He needs to be your Lord and your God. And when you come to truly appreciate and understand that, then you can experience the amazing, transforming grace of God in your life. And you can receive that today. Let's pray together. God, we are just in awe of the amazing grace that you offer us. With all of our sin and all of our shortcomings and the issues we bring, you still came to us, to your own creation, your people. And you gave us grace. (laughs) And if you are in this room right now, and you would be honest, you would say, you know what, Brian, maybe, maybe you've grown up at church, maybe you've been around church, maybe you've been around religious stuff, but you would be willing to admit, you know, I, I've never actually had a real true experience of grace. I've never had a real relationship with Jesus. I've known religious things, but I don't know Jesus. Well, you can receive his grace right now. You can start a real relationship with him. And you can just agree in your heart with some of these words I'm saying. You say, God, I want your grace in my life. I want you to take my sin. I want to be set free. I don't want to be shackled anymore by the guilt and the mistakes and the issues of my life. I want you to be Lord of my life. 
And for everybody reaching out to you right now, Lord, I pray that they truly would experience the life-changing grace of Jesus in their lives, that they can come to truly know you and that it would set them free. And we pray this in the amazing name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen, amen. Thanks for checking out this week's message. If you'd like to get involved here at Northern Hills, check out our website at inhills.org or download the Northern Hills app. We hope to see you again soon.